is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Summer officially begins tomorrow, but don't tell that to much of the country, including people right here in Southern California. They're already feeling the summer weather as heat waves roll across the U.S. Scientists say they expect more and more that and it will get hotter and hotter. We go in-depth into whether big cities and states are prepared to deal with more extreme heat waves. Flying has become a roll of the dice lately. Will your flight take off as scheduled, or will it be canceled? And who really knows? But is it time for the government to get involved with new regulations? And Ukraine... Ukraine is worried Russia will get even more aggressive in the east. The Republican Party in Texas adopting a resolution saying President Biden didn't really win in 2020. We'll talk with a historian about the January 6th insurrection, the hearings, its place in American history. God, not as popular as he used to be. And a man's tombstone message is uh, really touching. It's very nice. But some officials at the cemetery and in the town they're not happy with it because they say there is a hidden message in there, and it is obscene. So it's like God need a new PR agent or something? <laughs> not as popular? <laughs> okay, we'll get into that. We start with uh, heat, and if cities are ready for what's coming. Lad Keith is a professor at the University of Arizona College of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture. Uh, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. So uh, as we live increasingly in this, I guess, climate-changed world of ours with the heat waves uh, becoming much more frequent in big cities in particular where it's a problem, I suspect, maybe a little bit more than in suburban areas, the question on the table is, are these big cities, Los Angeles, Phoenix, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, are they really prepared yeah, that's a great question. And what we found with our research and research through colleagues is that heat planning is very far behind how we plan for other risks like flooding, wildfire, and drought. And so the impacts from heat are often a lot less visible than a dramatic event like a hurricane or wildfire. But despite that, it's still the number one weather-related killer in the United States. So we have a far way to go to address it properly. And it's just going to get worse, right? I mean, the heat waves are going to get stronger and longer. That's what's expected. And and we don't think about heat as, as a killer, but people have been dying when we've gone through these before. And, and I mean, unfortunately, we expect that to continue. Yeah, absolutely. Last summer alone, um, we had that Pacific Northwest heat wave in the Northwest United States and Western Canada. And um, unfortunately, uh, over 1,400 heat-related deaths with that incident alone. Uh, but it's not just the heat waves that we should be concerned about. In a place like where I'm at in Arizona, it's the chronic heat that we experience every summer, too. And so actually in hotter places like Arizona, we have more deaths from uh, that chronic heat than from heat wave periods. So both of them are a concern everywhere across the country. OK, so what is it that cities need to do that they're not doing? Yeah, so cities have two buckets of strategies that they're using to address heat. One is heat mitigation, which is reducing heat in the built environment. And that's through things like increasing vegetation, using cool pavement, um, reducing parking lot and roadway widths where they're able to, reducing waste heat from vehicles and inefficient air conditioners. The other bucket of strategies is heat management. So preparing and responding to both that chronic heat that I mentioned and heat waves as well. And that's through things like increasing public awareness of heat risk, improving early warning systems, 
and offering cooling centers or resilience hubs. And so what we found is that cities are focusing on a small set of those strategies and they're often not very coordinated. Um, and so coordinating those strategies is probably the best place for a lot of cities to start. There's also, and I, the term's escaping me right now, but it's these urban areas where, well, like here, when there's just so much asphalt and buildings and not enough trees and it makes it that much worse. Yeah, absolutely. That's the urban heat island effect. And not only does it make urban areas hotter than the surrounding countryside, sometimes by up to 10 degrees Fahrenheit, um, that heat is not equitably distributed across a city either. And so lower income areas, um, uh, neighborhoods with larger minority populations, formerly redlined neighborhoods, um, are often much hotter than their uh, richer counterparts. Is part of the problem that there are always some people who think it's not that big a deal. And, and I'm thinking of, I, I had a, a discussion a few years ago with a woman in Palm Springs out here in California. And uh, I said, you know, how do you live out here? How did people live out here before air conditioning? And she was old enough that she remembered living without air conditioning. And she said, oh, we just kind of got used to it. Uh, but is it that easy to get used to this? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, being in Tucson, Arizona myself, having grown up here even, and now working here at the university, um, I, I certainly hear that a lot. But that I think that answer is decreasing as people see that heat is increasing and that we're getting more of these extreme heat waves more frequently, they're longer in duration, and they're more intense when they happen. Um, and in for, unfortunately, in a place like Arizona, our heat deaths are trending in the wrong direction. So, um, you know, we've lived with heat here forever since we've built, um, you know, built cities but but it's getting hotter and more people are dying every year because of that. And so the last three years, we've broken heat death records, unfortunately, and we're seeing that trend across a lot of places in the United States. Lad Keith, professor at the University of Arizona, College of Architecture, Planning and Landscape Architecture. Hundreds and hundreds of airline flights have been canceled recently, including here in Los Angeles. Airlines, well, they're blaming bad weather and pilot shortages, but they've been given money over the years by the government to try to avoid some of these issues. Yet here they are again. Is it time for the government to regulate the industry like it once did? Henry Hartefeld is a travel and airline industry analyst with the Atmosphere Research Group. Henry, thanks for being with us. So I guess that really is the question, isn't it? Uh, is it? Are airlines just too important to be left to their own devices? And does it require that the government kind of step in at this point and try to do something? You know, if businesses show that they cannot run themselves well, if they do not treat their customers well when things go bad, then the government really has an obligation to step in to protect the consumer. So this is a warning to the airline industry. Get your act together or else. You think we're getting to that point? I mean, we opened the show saying, saying what? You go to the airport and it's kind of like a roll of the dice. Like, am I going to sure. be canceled today or not? We'll right. see how it goes, folks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Look, it, you know, the, it, you, the airlines can't control summer weather. But summer weather, thunderstorms, hurricanes, things like that are not new. Uh, the airlines received more than $50 billion to keep themselves afloat and to keep employees uh, employed during COVID. They let too many pilots go during 2020 and 2021. Granted, it's tough to find new pilots and granted it takes time to become a pilot, but they should have anticipated this. Clearly airlines didn't plan as well as they needed to. So here we are, and it's not fair to the traveling public or the communities that airlines serve. I, I wonder, and, and I'm certainly not in a position to advocate, but I do wonder why someone 
doesn't try to slap an airline with a fraud suit? Because it seems to me that you can build a case that it's it's a fraudulent operation. You you pay for a ticket. You're promised a, a flight at a certain date, a certain time. You get to the airport or maybe you don't even get to the airport and you're told, oh, sorry, uh, your flight that you paid for already, not available. Good luck. We'll get you on a flight in the next couple of days. Right. So, so look, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really answer your question about whether it's fraud or not from a legal standpoint. But clearly, when we make a reservation with an airline, we do so with the intent that the airline will be able to operate the flight from A to B at, at or very close to the times indicated. Granted, there are circumstances outside the airline's control, such as weather, and granted, safety comes first. So if there's a maintenance problem, you're not going to operate an unsafe aircraft. But, you know, uh, uh, the airlines clearly need to do a better job. Now, some airlines certainly are doing a better job with recruiting pilots, flight attendants, and other workers than others. And in fairness, this problem isn't just airlines. The FAA is short-staffed, and and even organizations like the TSA are struggling to hire more people to work at the security screening points. But when you buy a, a, a book a reservation for a flight, it shouldn't be a roll of the dice, as you said, and, you know, where, where you might as well just go to Vegas and wager your money on, on something. That's not the way it should be. When the rules are broken that we already have, are there people actually there to police those? Like that you cannot sit on the plane on the tarmac for X amount of hours. We've got to deplane you because it seems like plenty of that still happens. Right. Well, look, again, there's a so-called three-hour tarmac rule and airlines do their best to make sure delays don't exceed three hours. They keep some snacks, shelf-stable snacks like granola bar- bars on the plane and water uh, in case the delay does exceed three hours. And those l- very long delays are rare. But what's really a concern that I have is this, that when problems occur at airlines, everything is so fully booked that there are no available seats on that airline. And even if an airline does exchange tickets with another carrier, One, that other carrier may be booked. And two, the airline may instruct their people, no, don't rebook those people on another airline. We want to keep the revenue to ourselves. So this is, I think, where the government is saying, if you don't get your act together, airlines, we're going to step in and force you to do things that you haven't had to do in a long time. Well, you know, and to your point about airlines not wanting to rebook you, as they used to do on a pretty regular basis, actually, a few years ago on other airlines, they also lie a lot. I mean, I've sat at airports where I have, you know, one of those apps on my phone where I can kind of trace where the aircraft happens to be. And I know, for example, that the aircraft is coming from, I don't know, say Oakland, but it hasn't taken off yet. Yet you look at the, uh, you know, the information at the gate and they keep saying, oh, we're just 10 minutes delayed. Well, it's not going to be 10 minutes. It can't be 10 minutes delayed. It's going to take like 45 minutes for that flight to arrive. Right. And look, this is the other challenge airlines face. Consumers, we, the traveling public, uh, are smarter and better informed than we were 10, let alone, you know, 20 or more years ago. Uh, so if if the agent at the, at, or the sign at the airport or an agent is saying, oh, the plane will be here and you've got information that it won't, nobody looks good there. Now, it is possible in some cases that, uh, uh, you know, the airline may say, look, the original plane is going to be late. We're going to swap another plane. But then they should be honest about that, because if they're swapping another plane and it's 10 minutes to boarding, that plane's not boarding in 10 minutes. 
Henry Hardevelt, travel and airline industry analyst, the Atmosphere Research Group. Henry, thanks. Have you ever had that happen? Oh, uh, yeah, a few times. Because you have an app on your phone, I'm you sure. You know what? Right? Saturday, we <laughs> the plane next to us broke down, the earlier flight. So we rescued half of them because we were all going the same place. But huh. I felt for the other half of the people who didn't get on because their next one was like 4 o'clock, and that one was full, so they weren't going anywhere. Yeah. You know? yeah. Right now, NATO's Secretary General says Russia's war in Ukraine could go on for years, and the effort requires Western support. This comes as Ukraine's Deputy Defense Minister says Russia's ordered its military to overrun the entire eastern region by next Sunday. That could prove difficult for Ukraine to win back that territory. With us now is CBS military consultant Jeff McCausland, retired U.S. Army colonel. Jeff, thanks for being back with us. So we asked somebody asked we, last week, and we'll ask you the same thing. Is Russia now winning this war? Well, first of all, you've got to define what winning looks like. The Russians have not achieved the objectives they set out, which was to secure all of Ukraine. That failed when they failed to take Kiev and they failed to take Kharkiv. They've now downsized their objectives, focused perhaps, almost totally on the Donbass, Luhansk, and Donetsk provinces. They are making steady progress there. It's basically a, a grinding artillery war of pulverizing places and then moving forward very slowly. Uh, they are now pretty much surrounded the city of Severodonetsk in the Luhansk province, in which they capture that if they do, and it may do so in the next few days. They'll have about 90-plus percent of the Luhansk district. They still only control about half of Donetsk, so it's a pretty tall order for them if they're going to achieve that entirety of the Donbass, which comprises both those provinces, by the next few days. I was reading, though, this morning, Jeff, that um, you know all of the arms shipments that the U.S. and Western allies have promised the Ukrainians, uh, you know, a lot of it hasn't yet gotten there because it just takes a lot of time. And then, you know, the the equipment has to, uh, uh, you know, you have to get to the point where you train the personnel how to use it because they're not used to some of the equipment that we're shipping them. And that apparently runs to the Russians' advantage, does it not? Absolutely, without question. I mean, what the Ukrainians want is a greater or more rapid absorption rate of that new equipment so they can put it on the battlefield. They have complained privately and publicly that pledges have not equaled delivery in many cases, and finger-pointing particularly at the Germans on howitzers and air defense weapons they promised that may not arrive until later on this particular summer. But as you're talking about more sophisticated weapon systems, I'm an old artillery guy. To talk about artillery, you've got to talk about the counter-battery radar systems, the communication systems, the drones that will acquire targets, the processing of data, et cetera. It takes a long period of time to train somebody up to do all that. Training them to actually operate the cannon might only take a week or so. So there's a real training requirement. And the Ukrainians are talking about ways that the training can be accelerated, perhaps start training before the weapons are even delivered, perhaps use contractors in various ways to accelerate the pace of that so the delivery can be much more quick and they can be put in place on the battlefield for better effect. When you talk about cannon, Russia still has a lot more of that stuff than, than Ukraine has had or been able to acquire. No doubt about it. I mean, don't forget, Joseph Stalin once said, quantity has a quality all its own. <laughs> and the use of mass artillery fire has always been a Soviet, now Russian, tenet of their military doctrine. And this also is mass fire where they don't have to be very precise about it. They have the location of a city like Severodonetsk. They just pound the city. They don't need to look at particular targets. Now, if you're looking to fire against a mobile target, whether it's a tank, a headquarters, or an artillery battery, well, that takes a lot more precision. What they're doing right now is really mass fires. And they've got a lot of artillery and a lot of ammunition. So the longer this goes on, the more it becomes a war of attrition. To whose advantage, if anyone's, does that go to? Well, it's a little unclear to me right now because attrition is also manpower and materiel. 
Now, if we can solve some of these problems of material delivery and the West can hold to the modern equipment it might deliver, the Ukrainians might be able to do well there. They have called national mobilization, so any man between 16 and I think 55 is eligible to be called into their forces. But they've they finally admitted they probably lost somewhere between 40 to 50,000 casualties. That's killed, wounded, missing, captured, etc. On the Russian side, they have not called for mobilization. We expected that in the victory speech Putin delivered a few weeks ago. It wasn't there. So they're still dependent on their uh, current army, which is only about 350,000. And they've probably had 100,000 casualties, dead, wounded, missing, and captured. So whether they can maintain that force structure is an open question. Further all, they've lost a lot of material, which will be harder in some cases for them to replace, maybe a 1,000 tanks or about two years of Russian production. So it's a little unclear right now, but certainly this is now becoming a battle of attrition and a war of willpower. CBS military consultant Jeff McCausland, retired U.S. Army colonel. Thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Is the Texas Republican Party moving even more to the right? Is there anywhere to the right that's left to go? <laughs> they held a convention over the weekend where it passed a resolution that rejects President Biden as the winner of the 2020 election. Its platform also included a section calling homosexuality an abnormal lifestyle choice. And the party says it opposes all efforts to validate transgender identity. With us now to discuss the uh, party's platform is Joshua Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project over at the University of Texas. Josh, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So let's take it, I guess, one at a time. Uh, Let's start with the convention saying uh, that uh, President Biden was uh, elected illegitimately. uh, Therefore, I guess it follows that he's in the White House uh, by uh, uh, illegitimate means. Um, in light of especially the hearings that have now been going on, how do they manage to do that? How do they pull that one off? Well, I think this is a good example of of the counter-programming that's going on right now and has been going on for a long time. Ultimately, the hearings last week, which you just brought up, are in many ways an effort by Democrats to to correct the record, uh, you know, especially amongst Republicans. The only issue is that for most Republicans, the record has already been decided, and here in Texas, a majority of Republicans uh, don't believe that Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election legitimately, according to polling that we've done. And further, look upon the January 6th uh, riots or insurrection, however you want to describe it, as uh, merely protesters exercising their constitutional rights. And so the fact that this found its way into the platform is wholly unsurprising in a state and in a country where most Republicans continue to reject the validity of the election. Right. So easier to put it in when you think that the polling supports you. And then also that uh, whoever's watching these are not the people who are going to be voting for you anyways. If it's not going to break through, then it's not going to break through. There's a lot more danger in even indicating that you might think that the election was legitimately conducted as a Republican in Texas than to just simply say that it wasn't. Okay, so then let's take the next thing. Uh, Homosexuality, says the uh, platform of Republicans in Texas, an abnormal lifestyle choice. Why did that even come up at this particular uh, convention? Was this something that had been kicking around for a long time and this was deemed to be the year that it was, I don't know, acceptable for them to do it? Or is this something new? No, I mean, I would think this is, if anything, somewhat of a progression of where the party has been. I think if if you look back at at recent platforms, it's not as though uh, these issues were not present. In 2014, homosexuality was described as a chosen behavior 
in the platform. And in 2022, we're looking at an advance to an abnormal lifestyle choice. And I think this just reflects uh, to some degree, you know, the confidence that Republicans feel to pursue their agenda. When I say Republicans, I should be very clear here. The, the, the Republicans who participate in the party convention and draft this platform are a very, very small set of a subset of statewide Republicans. Having said that, the views that they're expressing are not totally outside the mainstream. And what you've seen after the successes of the last legislative session, the ability of Republicans to hold off Democratic challenges, and now on, on the heels of redistricting, which makes most seats in the state Democratic and Republican safe, I think what you're seeing is that the party here is really uh, pushing to the outer bounds uh, of some policy areas in a lot of these social uh, issue areas that they really kind of tried to move away from after a close shave of, uh, on elections, sort of going into the 2020 elections. I remember the the log cabin Republicans uh, years ago saying, you know what, this is this is this is our time. It's going to be a much friendlier party. We're, we're evolving. Uh, what are they saying now with this language in here? Uh, you know, bless the log cabin Republicans for trying because they are not even allowed to participate at the convention. They actually have to hold uh, their activities outside of the convention halls, but they continue to push uh, in efforts to uh, gain some acceptance within the party. But the reality is, and I think this should make clear, the party is moving in the opposite direction of that. So when when it comes time for presidential primaries in, in your state in Texas, which view, in, in your view, is going to predominate? Is it going to be the more moderate Republican view, or is it going to be the more, uh, I was going to say radical, but that almost seems like the wrong word to use when described. Think, such reactionary. A reactionary, thank you, is a, is a better word. Uh, or the more reactionary view of the Republicans who are involved in drafting this particular platform. I think that's a tough question. I think on, on the one hand, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of appetite for reactionary politics and even amongst Texas's more moderate Republican voters. And so even though some of uh, these policy planks may feel, you know, very extreme uh, in some places, and especially maybe maybe where your, your listeners are, uh, these are only in some ways incremental steps down the path that Republicans have been um, you know, going for for a number of years, and that includes you know with with the ascent of moderate Republicans. At the same time, uh, just because some moderate Republicans might disagree with aspects of the party platform, doesn't mean that they're going to turn around and vote for Democrats. Because if we know one thing from polling, we know that Republicans in Texas, like Republicans in a lot of places, dislike Democrats more than they like Republicans. And so even here, uh, it's not likely that the 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 further pushing to the right of the policy platform uh, is likely to, to drive away many Republican voters. The question now is whether it turns off independence. Joshua Blank, Research Director, the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas. The January 6th hearings resume tomorrow. The panel set to talk to the Georgia Secretary of State and his deputy about how former President Trump asked them to find the votes needed for him to win in Georgia. This will be the fourth hearing, which has captivated some sections of the country, but not all, despite the historical nature of what's happening. With us is uh, Professor Eddie Glaude, chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton University, host of the new C-13 podcast series, History is Us, which explores critical moments in American history that have shaped the country. Professor, thanks for being with us. So how does this stack up, at least um, so far, in those critical moments? Well, I mean, first of all, it's a delight to be with you, but... Um... 
the country is in a moment of crisis, and it is a crisis that has uh, this these deep historical resonances. It's as if we're still uh, litig- we're re-lit- re- relitigating the, the the battles of the mid twentieth century, uh, and is, there are these haunting echoes of the collapse of radical reconstruction. Uh, so we are in a battle for the soul of the nation in this moment. So we'll see what happens. You know, I heard a, an interview over the weekend. I think it was with Liz Cheney, if I'm not mistaken, where she was asked if she thought we are at the verge of, of another civil war. And she said uh, words to the effect of uh, not yet. What do you think? We're in a cold civil war that can turn hot. Uh, January 6th was a reflection of that. I mean, the country is deeply divided. Uh, is divided along partisan lines, of course, Republican and Democrat, but those often serve as proxies uh, for deep racial divisions, regional divisions, which also serve as proxies for uh, uh, kind of, shall we say, uh, ethnic differences and the like. Um, so I think, you know, it would it would not be hyperbolic to say that we are in a cold civil war that is uh, getting hotter and hotter, hotter by the day. Going back to the phrase, you know, relitigating so much of this, why does history repeat itself? I mean, why do we fall into these loops when we should be able to see them coming? Well, I think it's because we never really resolved the central contradiction. Uh, If we think of freedom as an end, as something you achieve once and for all, and then you wash your hands and move on to other matters, uh, then we leave ourselves open to to the ongoing reality that there there are forces that seek to overrun our very conception, our very idea of freedom. We have never resolved the central contradiction at the heart of the polity. And that is that we believe that this country, some at least, believe the country is more than an idea, that it's an ethnostate, that it, that is a country for and by and, and owned by white people. And we've never really resolved the question of what do we do with these former slaves? What do we do with this idea that, that America is more than an ethnostate, that it is, in fact, a set of principles, an argument to be fought over. Um, and we find ourselves, because we're dealing with uh, um, legacies of, of, of Jim Crow, legacies of slavery, uh, relitigating the question about the place and standing of, of the country. Are we a multiracial democracy or are we not? And some people are vis- vehemently arguing for the latter these days. And who's winning the argument? Oh, in this moment, oh my goodness, uh, we find ourselves uh, really trying to figure out who we're going to be. Uh, We thought we had a moment of breakthrough after we all sat uh, in our homes uh, during uh, the height of the pandemic and we witnessed George Floyd's murder. And we saw people, despite a pandemic ravaging our communities, uh, you know, flooding into the streets, demanding uh, a better form of policing, a more just America. And they came from all walks of life. And what have we seen since? We can't even pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We've seen a wholesale attack on voting rights across the country. Uh, we know that Roe v. Wade is a, perhaps about to be overturned. We see don't, gay, don't say gay laws in, 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 in Florida and people a group of white men in a U-Haul armed to the teeth, ready to assault a pride parade. Um, It seems as if there are forces out there who want to take us back to some nostalgic imagining of America. Uh, And they they are pretty organized. It seems to me that we have to fight for the America we want a little bit more forcefully. 
Given how polarized things are, though, that it's not even like, oh, we hold different beliefs. Let's uh, negotiate anymore. But but the, the other guy is trying to tear this whole place down. That's that's what a lot of people on each side think. Uh, can we actually do the work that's needed? Well, we have to first concede that one side is right here. Right. When we when we do a kind of both sideism as if, uh, you know, those who are self-described progressives are somehow equivalent to those on the right, the extreme right. The, the, you know, we've relabeled them alt-right when in fact they're just, you know, neo-fascists and white supremacists. When we equate those two, we're, we're revealing more than we're, than, than we're saying, right? Uh, there are those who hold the view that either America remains a white nation in the vein of old Europe, or we will throw the entire experiment away. Uh, and our current political battles are not battles between uh, different ideological parties, both committed to the background conditions of democracy. Uh, I can disagree. I've never found myself ever, Mike and Charles, agreeing with Liz Cheney, ever. Um, I find her politics in some ways noxious. But it's because she agrees to the background conditions of democracy that I'm able to disagree with her. There are those on the right who do not com concede to the background conditions that make our democracy possible. And they are not equivalent to people who are arguing for decent wage, universal health care, um, and the like. And we need to be clear about that. Professor Eddie Glott, chair of the Department of African American Studies, Princeton University, and the new podcast, the C-13 podcast, History Is Us, explores critical moments in American history that have shaped the country. Professor, thanks for coming on the show. This is KNX In-Depth. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. God might be slowly falling out of favor across the U.S. New Gallup poll finds a number of adults who believe in God is now 81%. It's down six points from just five years ago. The numbers used to be in the 90s, so why are people saying anyway that they're not believing anymore? Brett Hoover is a professor and graduate director of theological studies at Loyola Marymount University. Thanks for being with us. You know, I, I, back in the, I think it was like 60, 1966, something like that, Time Magazine had this uh, cover, and I'm sure you remember this, uh, you know, Is God Dead, which was very controversial at the time. Uh, and I'm wondering whether this is just a continuation of that. So, no, I don't. By the way, it's, it, I'm happy to be with you today. I don't think it's a continuation in most senses of what was happening in the 1960s, where the, the, the flavor of that was more of, of rebellion, of looking at things differently. If you looked at the theologians that were arguing that was God was dead, they weren't actually atheists. They were people that were questioning traditional notions about who God was. This seems more about people questioning even the existence of God, and it's probably more related to this trend starting in the 1990s where younger people are less likely to think of themselves as religious. And is that what it is when, we, when you look at like who's not believing anymore? It's mostly young people? It, it, young people are leading the charge. You'll notice in the data, in the data from the Gallup poll, it, it does have a slight tick on all the different generational groups, but the largest, the kind of minus 10 points, is in the, uh, the youngest groups. Now, but what's not clear to me is, are they talking about not believing in, in uh, a spiritual being, you know, a God, a, a, almost like a person-like figure, uh, but do they still believe in in spirituality in some sense of the term? 
For a lot of them, it is true. I mean, it does seem that people who formally call themselves agnostics or atheists are on the slight uprise. But even a lot of, I mean, I found with my own students, even some people that describe themselves as atheists, then when I, you know, probe a little bit further, they do believe in some kind of higher power, and they certainly have a some kind of commitment to a spirituality. So I think you're right to ask that question. And that's kind of agnostic, right? Like, I'll never be able to figure it out, but I think maybe there's something I'm never going to know until it's over, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's almost like two kinds of agnostics. There's the ones that are exactly like what you said. And then there's other people that just don't really care about the question at all. But in general, agnostics and atheists have to care a lot about the question to answer it. And is this, as far as you can tell, with your students, for example, how does this this sort of dwindling belief, uh, and maybe dwindling is even too strong a word, because the poll certainly suggests that that more people still believe in God than do not, but but declining, maybe that's a better word. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Sorry, I, go ahead. No, I was going to say. I mean, how does that play out in the behavior? Do you think of people? Well, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure that it's clear how it does. I mean, some behaviors obviously have been on the decline, much more on the decline than belief in God. As you said, overwhelmingly, Americans still believe in God. But, uh, but what, where, where the decline is probably more pronounced is in things like church going or praying every day or some of the traditional practices that are associated with religion. But Truthfully, sometimes those feel like they've declined more because we're always comparing them to how they were in the 1950s and early 60s when they were at like an all-time high. You know, after World War II, people were looking for, uh, you know, spiritual comfort and stability and things like that. Is it also that, you know, fewer parents are taking the kids to church, they're less likely to start going on their own once they get older? Absolutely. There's there's definite evidence that a lot of the people that are the so-called nuns, people who uh, judge themselves to have no religion, are children of people who don't really think of themselves as having a religion. But there's also a lot of people, especially young people, who want to distance themselves from what they see religion as being. And it's usually as being uh, uh, too strict, judgmental, hypocritical, and uh, associated with um, certain kinds of political movements that are more conservative. You, you discounted at the very beginning uh, a parallel to the 60s when I was mentioning the the uh, Time magazine cover at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but have there been uh, other times in American history? Uh, now, of course, the polling wouldn't have been there, but is there any reason or any evidence to suggest that we've had similar times in this country's history? Um, yes and no. I think not exactly in that uh, even among like one of the most kind of irreligious periods in American history, as far as we can tell, was during the revolutionary era, where people were more interested in the enlightenment and rationality and reason in the same way that some of our founding fathers were, who uh, put those ideas into the uh, into the founding documents of the country. And they were not all that traditionally religious. But they all believed in God or, and believed that God created the world, in part because there were no other competing explanations at the time, right? There was no, there was no Big Bang. There wasn't even a theory of evolution yet exactly. Fred Hoover, professor, graduate director, theological studies, Loyola Marymount. 
Well, a man's tombstone with a warm message on it has stirred up some outrage in the Des Moines area of Iowa. Some local officials there say it should be removed because, well, it's obscene. Well, the message is divided into seven lines. So this is kind of like an audience participation thing. So if you're in a position where you have a pen and paper, you're going to figure this out. If you're at home, start writing this down. Just write it out. Because the key is... Uh, it's the, the message is divided into seven lines, and I'm telling you right now that if you write it down, the first letter of each line will tell you what the message actually is. It'll tell you what you need to know. Exactly. So line one, forever in our hearts. Line two, until we meet again. Three, cherished memories. Four, known as. Five, our son, brother. Six, father, Papa, uncle, and seven, friend and cousin. Which is all a very nice message. Yes, beautiful message. And then go and solve the puzzle. Yeah. The family says no harm was meant by what's spelled out uh, in those first letters. With us is Lindsay and Zachary Owens, daughter and son of the man, Stephen Paul Owens, whose tombstone has this message on it. Thanks to you both for, for being here. So this has caused, I guess, a, a dust-up with some of the, the people in your town, or at least the officials with the cemetery. Uh, Lindsay, take us through the, the story of of why you chose this message to, to go on the tombstone. And I guess it, it tells us plenty about uh, uh, your dad. Um, he, he was a um, loving guy. Uh, he was very easily riled up. Um, it was kind of a goal of everyone, you know, that was close to him. He was very easy to get him to say that to you. So um, <laughs> it, it was a term of endearment for him. Um, he, if he didn't like you, he didn't talk to you. So if he was telling you that, you were definitely on his good side. Um, we came up with the idea. We wanted to just put that blatantly ac- across there. And everybody was like, oh, I don't know if we should do that. And so actually our cousin came up with the idea of doing it this way. And we weren't ever trying to offend anybody. It was just, our, you know, how we how we remember him. <laughs> Zach, I, I'm wondering, uh, were you present when anybody may have seen it for the first time and it kind of dawned on them what it said? Uh, I wish I was. <laughs> but no, I wasn't. I haven't seen, I haven't been out there at the same time as anybody else looking at my father's headstone other than people that I'm with. So I, I wouldn't know, unfortunately. So how did the, the trouble, I guess, start? Who, who called you and said, uh, guys, we need to talk about what's on here? Um, initially, um, right before the headstone was installed, um, it actually started over the placement um, of the foundation for the marker. Um, so I had been in touch with the cemetery about that. She didn't want to move it over because it was off center. Um, and so then right before it was installed, she asked for the dimensions from the, the monument company company. And, um, so that he sent her the, the design obviously with the, the dimensions on it. And she said at that point she was taking it to the board and that she didn't know if it would be installed. Um, the monument company said if they didn't receive a court injunction that said, you know, why they couldn't install it, they were going to go ahead and install it on Friday. And he did because he never received anything. So uh, guys, is it going to stay? We, you know, I, I don't know. Um, we read one article and it says, you know, that they've talked to him and it sounds like they're, they don't have any grounds to move it. And then the next one says they're still trying to have it removed. So we haven't heard anything personally. Um, we're not really sure. At this point. Yeah, we want it to stay. I guess I'm wondering, you know, 
where the harm is in having it. Who, if someone's going and reading every headstone in the cemetery, maybe they're going to spend their day doing that. But who's going to go to this and actually look at it and, and solve it and go, oh, my gosh, now I'm so offended randomly. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's that's our question. That's our biggest thing is uh, we don't see who, who it harms. Um, it's the way that we want to remember our dad. So, you know, let us be. Let us remember our father our way. Well, and and and, in mind a, your and I was going to say, and, and in a sense, it, I guess if even if somebody were to be offended by it, isn't isn't it kind of the ultimate it's thing? Funny <laughs> to, to sort of tell them. I mean, you know, it's like it says it yeah. all. Yeah. It and isn't it kind of? You, you would think it would be simple as don't look at it. If you don't like right. it, yeah, don't read it. Yeah, I mean, walk away from it. It's it seems very simple to us. I. We don't understand that. Well, and to your point, it's something he would have said to whoever would go there and not like this. Right. And he would probably tell the cemetery people or the town people to do the same to do this thing. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. He's probably doing that right now. I'm sure that's what he's doing. So, so I I mean, you guys sound like you're pretty young. So, so, but have you now thought of things that maybe you want to put on your tombstone someday? (laughs) I guess. None that I can say on the air. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, but I, I'm also curious. I mean, the the people who inscribed it, uh, the, the the company. I, I mean, they must have been mortified, weren't they? Actually, when we took it into him, um, I was like, "Can we do this?" And he was like, "You can put anything on it you want." So, I mean, he said he's installed them with all kinds of things. He said, "What's offensive to one person, you know, may not be to another." So, you can put whatever on it you want. So he didn't really bat an eye at it even. Yeah, since this is kind of blown up, have you seen other people like rising to your defense and saying, hey, look what we got over here, guys? Almost everyone. Yeah, yeah the the support is overwhelming. I mean, it 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 it, it is funny. It's it's rare that that tombstones become funny, but it is it it is <laughs> funny. And and but I wonder how many people would actually even get it if they didn't know. I mean, if like if you just read it without yeah, if you thinking, just read it, it's yeah, very nice. Yeah, unless somebody actually kind of guides, like I did in the setup uh, when I was yeah. mentioning, you know, to you, you know, it's the first letter of every sentence. But I wonder how many people would read it, and it would it even occur to them. You know, I've showed pictures of it to multiple people, people that know him, even, and they had no idea that it was there until I pointed it out. <laughs> no That's idea. Great. That's, That's great. great. That's perfect. Yeah. All right. Lindsay and Zachary Owens, okay, uh, remembering their dad, exactly how they want to remember their dad, uh, Stephen Paul Owens. Thanks, guys. Uh, That's in depth for today. <laughs>